Please turn in your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10, will be beginning with verse 32. Pick up where we left off last time. <clears throat> it's interesting how in God's providence that this passage in Mark parallels the passage that was considered this morning, although I plan to take a little different uh, tact upon it as we consider God's Word and think about this passage in relation to Christ's previous teaching and where we are within this book, because in this passage, Jesus once again tells his disciples what's going to happen, that he's headed to Jerusalem, that he's going to be killed, that he's going to rise, and it's the third time that he's done this in as many chapters. And so as we turn to God's word, we recognize we need his help, and so let us seek his face and ask the Spirit to guide us as we consider this passage. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we desire to sit under it knowing that it is your word. It is your word for us, and we sit under it as authoritative because it is, because it is from you. Lord, it is inerrant and and we know that we can trust it, and we know that it speaks. Lord, it is quick, it is living, it is powerful. And Lord, we pray that, that you, by your Spirit, would do your work through your Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Mark, chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him. And flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. We praise God that he has spoken to us this evening in his holy and inerrant word. 
I have a question for you, and please don't raise your hands, parents, because this is for you, but I'm guessing that it's quite possible that sometime in the life of, of your children and your family that you have had an instance where you have told your children or a child to do something, and it just seemed like they didn't hear you. It was like it just never registered in their ears or in their brain. Maybe you told them to pick up their toys or take out the trash, and it just went right through their head without even registering or something. Perhaps you've even wondered if they had a hearing problem, whether they were actually hearing properly, if, if, if everything that God had given them was working like it should, because they just didn't seem to hear. Well, here in our text, it seems like the disciples have a hearing problem. But as we see this more closely, we learn that it isn't their, just their hearing, it's their understanding and, and quite possibly even their willingness to believe that there is, a, that is the problem. Because here in this text, as we've said, that Jesus has told them for the third time what is going to happen. He's given them even more details in this text this morning about his suffering and the events that will precede his death. Yet the disciples are only concerned for themselves and their own glory in reaction to it. Showing that they neither know the way that the Lord is going to take them to accomplish the mission that he came to do. Nor are they willing to follow him in that way. You see, there's a gap. There's a gap in their understanding as well as in their expectation and in their desire of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I see in this text three divisions that will form our outline tonight. One is death foretold, meaning Christ's death. Secondly is selfish desire, the selfish desire of the disciples. And then finally, the selfless sacrifice of the servant. We see again that Christ's death is foretold. We, we join them in a sense as they're walking on the road. They're going up to Jerusalem. Scripture typically always speaks of Jerusalem as going up because of its elevated status, elevated position geographically as well as its status of the place of worship. They were going up to Jerusalem. And here we see Jesus walking ahead of the disciples and the text tells us that the disciples were amazed. It doesn't give us much explanation, but if we look at the other Gospels, particularly in Luke, we see that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it seems that there is in our Lord, here in this text, a certain resoluteness, a certain intensity with which he is approaching the cross. He knows that the time is nearing. He knows that's where he's headed. And he's walking out in front of the disciples. And they must have noticed something in his demeanor that amazed them. But it says that the others who followed were afraid. We don't know completely why that is either. But perhaps they saw the building animosity and, and strife that had developed between our Lord and the scribes and the Pharisees. And they, they, it, maybe it seemed to be coming to a head. We don't know exactly why. But we know that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. Here he predicts his death. We've seen it in chapter 8. We've seen it in chapter 9 and here again in chapter 10. We saw it in 8.31, in 9.31, and here in 10, beginning with verse 32. And each time, 
there's, there's some parallels between these times. Each time Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. Each time Jesus says that his death will be from human hands. Each time Jesus has said that he will be killed and will rise again. And each time our Lord's prophecy is met with disdain and or misunderstanding on the part of the disciples. Remember in chapter 8 that Peter literally rebuked his Lord for what he heard. He was so shocked by the idea of the Lord Jesus dying that he, that he responded in complete selfishness and rebuked the Lord. In chapter 9, Scripture tells us that the disciples did not understand and yet they were too embarrassed to ask Jesus. And then a little later, in a few verses later, we see that Jesus asked them, Hey, what were you all talking about? And they said, Well, we were talking about who was the greatest. Again, they were thinking about themselves in the midst of, of what Jesus had told them about his mission and what he had come to do. Each time Jesus has instructed them about the nature of his kingdom, about the true meaning of greatness. And in the verse just previous, if you remember from the last time we looked at this, he told them that the first will be last and the last first. And yet after all this, the disciples still don't get it. And here, Jesus tells them again in, in greater detail about his impending death. He says he'll be condemned by the chief priests and scribe, scribes, then delivered over to the Romans to carry out that sentence, that he would be mocked, that he would be spit upon, that he would be flogged and then killed. All of this in very similar language we read about later in this, in this book in, in Mark 14 and 15. And we wonder why they can't see it. Why are they so thick? Why are they so dense? Why can't they see what's going on? And, and, and even if they couldn't see it, we wonder, why didn't they ask for more? Why didn't they ask for more explanation? But it seems like they're just in their own world. One reason is, is their selfish desire. We saw that in chapter 9 as they argued who was to be the greatest. And we see it here in their request. And, and, and James and John, they, they ask Jesus a strange thing. And if you're a parent, if your kid asks you to give them whatever you ask, you're, you know you better ask, what are you, what are you asking for? And Jesus does that for them. They kind of ease into it, but really they're asking for a blank check. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And then they ask for these prime positions of power and authority on Christ's right hand and on his left. And, and I read that and I think, what are they thinking? What, who has the gall to ask that of the Lord Jesus? And it seems hard to determine whether they were really that slow or if there was something else at play here. And I, I think there was. I think there was more. It was certainly their own hearts. But if we think about their context, if we think about what they might have been thinking, if we think about the, the context in which, in the world that they lived in, it helps us maybe think what they were thinking. So, but there still is this gap that is developed between the life that they thought they were signing up for and Christ's teaching. You see, they were following a great leader. That was not uncommon in that day. They were following a rabbi, a teacher, he was one with authority. They had seen that. 
And he also called himself the son of man. Well, if, if we look at the prophet Daniel and we think about that phrase and we see how it's used in prophetic literature, it's used about the, the one who is given authority and dominion and power from God himself. The prophet Daniel called God the ancient of days. And in this picture, in this vision that Daniel saw, he saw him giving this power and authority to the Son of Man. And Jesus uses that term. So it must have built something within the, the minds of the disciples to think, this is a guy, this is a guy that's going to do something. Something's happening. Something's brewing here that we want to be a part of. However, they saw how they wanted to take advantage of that, whatever it is that was coming. They were looking for someone who could overthrow the yoke of Roman oppression. And they were looking for one who could sit upon the throne of David. So when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, as he did in all three of these these passion predictions, we could call them, and as he talked about rising again, it, it was almost like they heard blah, 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 son of man, and then maybe some more gibberish, and oh, he's going to rise again. This sounds like authority. This sounds like power. This sounds like dominion. This sounds like crushing the Romans. This is what we want to be a part of. By the way, Jesus, can we have those spots to your right hand and to your left in that moment of glory? But it was a selfish desire. They wanted to be in that place of power and prestige. And and we think of James and John, especially John, the beloved as he's called, as being mild and meek-mannered, laying on Jesus' chest, being the the favorite and most loved disciple. But Jesus didn't call these guys the sons of thunder for nothing. It was these two guys that wanted to bring down fire upon the cities that rejected Jesus. It was these two guys that, that kicked the guy out who was casting out demons in Christ's name. That, and, he, and they said, he wasn't one of us. We got rid of him. These guys had something in them that drove them. And here we see these two, these two that are typically listed with Peter working together maybe to one-up Peter and the other disciples. Because we saw that the other ten were indignant with them, probably because they got to it first. They thought of this, they hatched this plan on their own. But before we throw up our hands in disgust and say, stupid disciples, let's look at our own hearts. Because are we not often like these men in looking for an easy way? Are we not like them when we vie for position and influence? Are we not like them any time we seek to promote our own kingdom over the kingdom of Christ? Are we not like them when we willingly choose to continue in unbelief and disobedience? Jesus immediately tells them in so many words, you guys don't know what you're talking about, and they didn't. He asked them, can you drink the cup that I drink? Or can you be baptized with the baptism that I am facing? In the Old Testament, the cup of the Lord was a cup of judgment, was a cup of of God's wrath and indignation upon sinful men. Jesus knew he was facing that cup. It was this cup that Jesus spoke of in the garden when he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
And Christ, the sinless one, drank that cup full, full of God's wrath. He drank it down to the dregs for you and for me. Christ's path to glory involved much suffering. It involved facing the wrath of God as he stood condemned in our place. Jesus said to the disciples, are you able to walk this path with, path with me? And John and James and John foolishly say, of course, we're able. Not thinking for a moment of what it really involved. They think if that's what it takes to gain these positions, sure, sign us up. It's easy to feel confident when you don't know what you're talking about. It's easy to make claims until you have to back them up. And too often, saints of God, we don't really know ourselves. As Paul Tripp has said, we tend to think that no one has a more accurate view of us than we do. We, we think we know ourselves better than anybody else. And that's often why we get so defensive when we're challenged or reproved about something that, a blind spot that might be in our life. That's why they call them blind spots. It's because you can't see what you need to see. And we need a healthy dose of humility before the Savior as we consider ourselves, just like James and John did on that day. Then Jesus tells them, you will face suffering, not of the same nature and not of the same type that Jesus did or certainly to the same degree, but they will face suffering. And they did. We know that James was killed at the hands of Herod in Acts in the 40s. And John, while he perhaps was not a martyr, he suffered much in the long life that he lived. And then to their disappointment, Jesus tells them that those positions are not his to give, but for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus didn't come teaching a health and wealth gospel. He didn't say, follow me and all will be well. He didn't say, you'll have many friends, you'll influence many people. He didn't say, this is how you be a millionaire. No, quite the opposite. Jesus' message was one of the cross. He told the disciples in chapter 8, right after he had, had told them of the first time of his coming death, he told them to take up their cross and follow me. It was lose your life for me, is what Jesus said. Christ's call of discipleship is, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an invitation to come and die. And it's interesting to think about who was it in this gospel that was at Jesus' right hand and at his left. We see it in Mark 15, 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. These common thieves joined him in death. They were given that, those places at his right hand and his left hand. And of course, only one of them repented. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, the irony of that. We've seen Christ's death foretold. We've seen the selfish desire of the disciples. And now we consider these, these final verses that are so instructive of what Christ came to do the selfless sacrifice of the servant. I've said many times to you as we've gone through this teaching in the Gospel of Mark about these three questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? And I tell you that a lot of times because I want you to have the tools 
when you're talking to an unbeliever and says, who is Jesus? And you can say, you know what? The Gospel of Mark tells us a lot about who Jesus is. How about we read that together? I want you to think in these terms. I want you to think evangelistically about this Gospel. Because it is an evangelist. It is, it is the Gospel for us. And really in this text, we see the answer to all three of those questions. And especially in the final verse, in verse 45. But it's interesting how the message of the cross really bookends this passage of Scripture. Where Jesus talks about the cross. He talks about what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. That he's going to die. That he's going to rise again. And here it is, Jesus is telling them, kind of in summary form, what it is that he came to do in our final verse. He tells the disciples why they came. Why he came. But first, Jesus tells them about the world's way versus Christ's way. And he tells them something that they know all too well, and that is that the Gentile rulers, the Romans, under whose boot they live, rule by force. It is their great ones, as he calls them in our text, that exercise authority over them. Notice the ways of the godless ones, Jesus is is saying in essence to them. They rule by force and coercion. They struggle for power and the strongest survive. Then they become the force of power in society. Then these great ones exercise authority because they're the ones that have won the day. They've defeated all their enemies. They've overpowered their opponents. But this is not the way that Jesus is promoting. This is in contrast to what James and John were saying. He is going to the heart of what James and John has asked for. And he's saying... Look how these Gentile rulers rule. They rule by force. But he says, no, that's not the way it should be among the disciples. He's he's telling them again in a different way that there's an upside-down nature to his kingdom. The first are last. The humble are exalted. The rich are brought low. God uses the one that the world casts aside to accomplish his work. We've just passed the Christmas season and remember the song of Mary when she learned that she was to be the one to bear the Christ child. She repeated this over and over in in various ways. One of the things she said was, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We see that is God's way and Jesus is trying to teach this to the disciples. And here he tells them that to be truly great in God's kingdom, you must learn to serve. To be first, you must be the slave of all, he says in verse 44. What is it that a slave does? Why does a slave exist? A slave or a servant exists to please their master. They only do what the master tells them. They only exist to serve another. another. Their sole purpose is to advance the cause of their master. Let me ask you, is that how you're living? Are you living for others? What would it look like if we, if we in, in essence, tried to don the, the, the clothing of a servant? If we tried in everything we did to be a servant to those around us? What would it look like, husbands, if you sought to serve your wife? Young people, what would it look like to serve your siblings, your parents, What if you went to work tomorrow and thought, how can I make my boss successful? 
How can I be this slave, this servant that Jesus is calling us, his disciples, his followers, to be? Jesus is calling us to a life of humble service. But you know what? It's hard. It's hard to do that. Because sometimes we would much rather be served than to serve others. In our Sunday school lesson this morning on prayer, we we looked at that tiny three-word phrase from the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. And we thought about what it means to pray that. And praying your kingdom come, as, as the Lord Jesus instructed his disciples to in the Lord's Prayer, praying it seeks to advance God's kingly rule over us and all the world. But praying it for ourselves involves giving up our own grasp upon our kingdom and releasing that to King Jesus and saying, I need to be off this throne of King me and I need the Lord Jesus, the true king, to sit upon the throne and rule and reign in my life. And that's just the opposite of what we saw in James and John. They were vying for power and position and right and authority. And Jesus says, no, if you'll be truly great, learn to serve. Learn humility. John Dixon said in his book about humility, he says, and I think this is a good definition, humility is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. It's that idea of of giving of giving of yourselves for the good of others. So how do we do this? What example do we have? Well, Jesus tells us that he is that example. Jesus is our prime example. He's the quintessential servant. Jesus says that we should consider him as we think about humble servanthood. Jesus came not to be served, it tells us in verse 45, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to be a host and not a guest. You know the difference, right, between a host and a guest? A host makes it their business to serve. When you go to a restaurant, you're greeted by a host or hostess, and they say, welcome to our restaurant. Here, have this table here. Here's some menus. May I get you something to drink? They are all about Serving you. Well, what does a guest do? Well, a guest is that person that receives. It's a person to whom the host serves. It's a person to whom they give. The guest is the one that is being served by the host. Jesus came to be a host. He came to serve. He came to give. I I have to be careful about giving illustrations that involve my children. But there's three of them that work at Chick-fil-A, so I'm not singling any of them out. But Chick-fil-A knows what it means to serve, okay? This phrase, my pleasure, that just rolls off the tongue of my children, it's wonderful. But sometimes, if, if, if I ever ask one of my children to maybe do something they really don't want to do, but then they do it because they're, they're, they're being obedient, and I'll thank them, Sometimes that word just rolls off their tongue, even though I'm not sure it is their pleasure. But Chick-fil-A knows how to train people to be good hosts. 
And I think that's helpful for us to think about. Can we say it as our pleasure to serve others? Can we say to our neighbor that might be a little cantankerous that, that we want to extend grace and kindness to them in spite of their cranky nature? Can we be a good host to our boss by seeking to, to take pleasure in serving in our job, even though when we've been passed over for a promotion? Christ gave us the ultimate example. He came to serve. He came to give of himself. But what we must not miss here is that he's so much more than a mere example. He is the quintessential servant because he is the promised servant from the servant songs of Isaiah. Jesus is the one of whom Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, not because he exalted himself, but because of the glorious, meritorious work that he did upon the cross. And Jesus is not just the promised servant, he is the suffering servant as well. He gave his life as a ransom, our text says. The words of the prophet Isaiah in language that seems unimaginable to us, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he makes his soul an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Speaking of Jesus, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It is only through the substitutionary, sacrificial death of Christ, that we can be accounted righteous. Jesus died in our place. He died as our substitute. He died in our stead. We had an infinite debt because we had sinned against an infinitely holy God. We could not pay that debt. We needed someone of his stature, of his status to pay our debt. We had to have the God-man, Jesus Christ. He sacrificed himself because all the goats and the lambs and the bulls of the Old Testament were not sufficient to cover the guilt and penalty of our sins. When you think about that, probably the blood of millions of sacrifices had been spilled, yet they were insufficient, and the only thing they did was pointed to Jesus, the only one whose blood could actually cover and atone for us. He it is that can and has given his life as a ransom for you and me. If you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I beg of you, come to Christ. Think of what he has done so that you might be saved. Repent of your sins and trust in him for salvation. And if you are a believer and you wonder how in the world I can ever learn to serve in the way that Christ served, remember he is not just your example, but he is the power to obey. If you are a believer, you have the power of Christ in you. It is not something that's outside of us. It rests upon you and dwells in you through your union with Christ. Paul, the apostle, talks about his own wrestling and his struggle with this thorn in the flesh that he had prayed three times to be delivered from. And God told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect 
in weakness. And Paul responded, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul knew he could not deal with that without the power of Christ upon him. And we too must have Christ in us and his power upon us to serve in the way that he is calling us to. As we close, let me just leave you with a passage of scripture from Philippians, again pointing to our Lord Jesus. Here the apostle is admonishing the Philippians and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Christ humbled himself by taking on human flesh and blood And that's what we've just celebrated in this Christmas season. That Christ became man so that he might be the servant that we should follow. And the sacrifice that we absolutely must have to be made right with God. Let us pray.